It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. What's going on, y'all? It's J.D. Piquel, and welcome in to The Hard Count. This is the people show. So every single thing that you know, that you love about college football, it happens here, and it happens here on a daily basis. We are live on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 3 Central, 4 Eastern. So get your college football fix here all the time. But our live show happens on those days. We're going to do a lot of talk in this show. A lot of topics to cover, a lot to get into. Before we get to the docket, we do a you join the party segment at the end of every show. So right now, jump into the live chat. Shoot us your college football-related questions. It's the best thing we do here involving y'all into the program. Nick Brake gets on the camera, the keeper of the queue, and he'll read those off. We'll get to as many as we can. But golly, we haven't been live since Separation Saturday. Last time we talked, Bama was getting ready to go to Knoxville and play the Vols, and obviously Tennessee slayed the Giants. We still weren't really sure about LSU. Were they capable on offense? Weird game going down with them playing Florida. We know how that happened. There's a lot to talk about. A lot that has happened since then, and we have a big week ahead. Week 8 is going to be one of those sneakier Saturdays. Not a lot of those huge brands. I mean, Tennessee is playing UT Martin. Alabama plays Mississippi State. I mean, there's not quite as much glitz and glamour when it comes to some of these matchups, but there is still a lot of good games to jump into. Have a really exciting show set for you today. If you're more of a podcast person, you want to make sure that you get your fix, whether you're driving to work, whether it's at lunch, maybe it's during work. No judgment here. We're available on Spotify. We're available on Apple. Wherever you get your podcasts, we're there for you. What's on the docket for today? Great question. Glad you asked. We're going to talk about Tennessee's offense. They are scoring 47 a game, over 500 yards a game. We're going to give you the concepts that is effectively working like a charm in Knoxville for Josh Heupel and Hennon Hooker and why he's in the Heisman race. Going to also talk quite a bit about Clemson. They have, in my mind, at least one more hurdle in the ACC. Got Syracuse coming to Death Valley, trying to play spoiler. Also a ranked slash undefeated Syracuse team. Let that sink in. Going to preview that one, predict that one. Have Ole Miss heading to Death Valley to play LSU. So two Death Valleys in this show. Kind of a two-for-one kind of deal. LSU answered a lot of questions last week. Did a lot of things that I think some people were surprised by, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Don't look now, but this top 10 team coming to LSU is actually a one-and-a-half point dog. So LSU is favored at home. Feels like somebody knows something, but we'll give you our preview and prediction of that game as well. There is a big-time matchup happening in the Pac-12. Very, very big game. Top 10, if you will, with UCLA heading to Eugene to play Oregon. College game day is going to be there. A lot of the national programs are going to be on site for that one. Great chance for the Pac-12. Big stage. And quite frankly, could be some college football playoff implications. Going to take a peek at that one. Preview and predict it. You know the drill. And then, as always, we're ending the show having you join. So if you haven't yet, jump in the live chat right now. Hit us with your questions. Nick Brake's going to show his face on camera. It's a beautiful face. It's a beautiful segment. Want you a part of it. So make sure you get those in right now so we don't miss it. All right. Before we get to all of that, though, there is a very, very big game 
happening in the Big 12 Conference in Stillwater, Oklahoma. You got Texas going to play Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State kind of licking their wounds after a loss where they really had that game at hand, a bad loss in a lot of ways against TCU. And Texas is favored by six points in this game. So we know the, the conversation that's always around Texas at this time of the year. Right now, there are a lot of people having the yes, but when talking about Texas. Yeah, you played Alabama close, but can you beat a, a solid opponent on the road? Yeah, you beat Iowa State, but what happens when you get squeezed? So we're going to talk about that. But for Texas, they feel like they are on a revenge tour and they got a good win last week against Iowa State. Good win is probably strong verbiage to use. They were happy to win that game in some ways, depending on who you ask, fortunate to win that game. But they feel like they left something in the tank. Like they were, like I said, happy to win that game, but they feel like there was a little more that they were capable of doing in that game. Felt like they left some money on the table. And for them, the opportunity is very much so around the narrative of, okay, well, what happens when you go on the road? Because the Red River rivalry was a great win. That wasn't a road game. For the first time in a year, Texas has a chance to, well, not chance. If Texas wins the game, it'd be the first time in virtually a year for them to get a win like that on the road. So a lot of excitement in Austin for this game going on, obviously, and Stillwater. Now for Oklahoma State, they're trying to hit the reset button because they came into that game last week in Fort Worth against TCU, undefeated top dog in the Big 12, and they were marching towards Arlington, quite frankly. They still feel that way, but this is their chance to sort of steady themselves, collect themselves, and a win against Texas with how well Texas is playing and the conversation around Texas, that would do a lot for their perception nationally. I think it would also steady a lot of the belief in-house. Now, Kind of an interesting setup, if you will, because I think both these programs have their sights set on the Big 12 championship, and a loss here for either team just shrinks that margin for error. Both have a loss in Big 12 conference play, Two losses is kind of that magic number to where it's like you're on, the, you're on the fringe, right? Like you have a chance to still be in that game, but you can't have more than two losses in conference play and feel good about your chances making it. So rubber meets road right now. High stakes. What goes into this game? One of the things that I'm most curious to see is Quinn Ewers. We talked about it being a road game, but even more than that, what's under the hood with this guy? I know he has a rocket for an arm. I know he's a cool customer. I know there's not a throw in the football field that he can't make, has played really well in the early going. But what happens when he gets squeezed a little bit? We talked about it already. Going to be a tough road environment. This will be the first time in his college career where he's starting a game and there is 60, 70,000 people yelling at you and yelling bad things about your mom and dad. How does he respond to that? Because remember, this is still a kid who's pretty young in terms of his development and maturation at the college level. Has been given a lot of praise, a lot of accolades that to this point I would say are all fair. Like he has validated a lot of the hype around him. But what happens now when he goes into that kind of raucous environment? On top of that, what happens when he has to play an exotic defense? Because he played a good defense against Alabama. I think we saw there's some issues with Alabama in the secondary, so we don't want to speculate too much. But with this defense at Oklahoma State, it's not Jim Knowles' defense anymore in terms of him calling the system, but Derek Mason has kind of deconstructed it and built it back up to where they're still pretty complex. Like, this is still going to be a lot of unique looks for Quinn Ewers. So I'm curious, how does he process that? Is his processing slower with it being on the road? Does he lose composure? Because if he loses his composure and makes mistakes, that's going to potentially snowball momentum. 
The crowd will be as into it as Quinn Ewers, in my opinion, allows them to be. Something to keep an eye on. Because if he starts to have some errors and, and gives more momentum to that Oklahoma State offense and starts to press, this could be a little bit of a slippery slope for young Ewers. So he's got a lot of juice. What happens when he gets squeezed? Excited to see that. Other thing I'm looking at for this game, one of the hinge points. Which Spencer Sanders do we get? And this isn't a new talking point for us here. And we don't have anything against Spencer Sanders. I'm just saying I need some consistency, my guy. Last week in the first half, he was mobile. He was fairly efficient through the air. And then the second half happened, and it just felt like the wheels came off. Now, I also want to mention this. We don't know exactly how healthy he is. So maybe he's playing hurt. Maybe that's part of it. But just throughout the duration of his career, that's kind of always been the question. Which kind of Spencer Sanders is showing up? Are we going to see the Spencer Sanders that came to play in Waco against Baylor this year, where he was really efficient with the football and didn't turn the ball over quite as much. I mean, 70% completion percentage is what he did in Waco, really good with his legs. Or do we see the Spencer Sanders where he shows up and has less than half of his passes completed? Like 44% is what he was at against TCU, 16 for 36. Throwing... A lot of questionable passes, only ended up with one interception, but his decision-making routinely gave you some pause if you are a Cowboy fan. Spencer Sanders has a lot of ability, a lot of potential, but at the same time, for all of the positive things he's capable of doing, to the same token, he leaves himself a lot of potential to do just as many bad things, if that makes sense. So it's high risk, it's high reward. Which kind of Spencer Sanders do you get? Because if he's able to put the pressure on Texas by scoring points with his Oklahoma State offense, well, then you start to, like I said, you start to see this Texas program get squeezed. You start to see Quinn Ewers maybe press a little bit more than he would. Because they're down maybe 7-0, 10-0, whatever it is early. You see Ewers start to try and do more than he should. He tries to, you know, try to force the ball downfield a little bit more. Is that the case? Because if you get good Spencer Sanders, that's more of a possibility. If not then you kind of allow Quinn Ewers to gather himself. Game stays relatively low scoring early maybe, and he can kind of catch his breath, and then Texas can pour it on. That's not the situation you want to have if you're an Oklahoma State fan. So I'm curious to see which Spencer Sanders shows up. It'll be a very big deal in this game. Here's the thing that I'm most curious about. Because we watched Oklahoma State last week against TCU, and to be honest with you, the score could have gotten a little bit uglier than it did. TCU, in my opinion, left a lot of money on the table. Now, what do I mean by that? Spencer Sanders routinely threw the ball up, single coverage, gave his guy a chance, but threw it inside. Like, TCU probably had their mitts on, at least to my recollection, two passes where they could have intercepted that and changed the course of the game early. At the exact same time, the Oklahoma State defense, while they're really complex, they're still developing in their first year under Derek Mason. That back end, their five DBs they play, only one of them is back from a year ago. You got four new cats playing in that spot. And when I watched that TCU offense, there were some plays to be had that they weren't able to connect on. For Texas, how much money do you leave on the table? Because Spencer Sanders, like I talked about, he's going to throw it up. The secondary for Texas, they feel pretty good about. Can they continue to play at the level they have this year? And even more so, can they ramp it up and get those 50-50 balls to be interceptions? If they can, you know the drill. 
spots more points for your offense, at least more opportunities for your offense, and things can get going in a hurry. When you come to the offense, they're going to dial it up. They're going to try to be aggressive. Oklahoma State defense will, that is. They're going to try and make yours uncomfortable. They're going to gamble a little bit. And if you can punch them on the chin a few times early, if you can connect deep early, get Worthy involved, allow Bijan to eat a little bit, you know what I'm saying. It's going to put pressure back on Oklahoma State. But the whole key is when that money's on the table, you got to grab it. There will be opportunities. There will be plenty of plays to be had. But with Quinn Ewers, first real road start, can he connect on those? That's going to be crucial. Because Oklahoma State last week allowed 224 yards on the ground at TCU and still almost won the game. Over the course of the year, they're giving up 478 yards of total offense. So they're susceptible on defense. This is not the same defense you saw a year ago. Schematically, they're similar. Personnel-wise and execution-wise, they're not. They're very gettable for Texas and Quinn Ewers. Our prediction for this game. I just think Oklahoma State has the attention of Texas. And we talk about that a lot of where's the culture at? Is there a potential letdown spot? We kind of saw that last week against Iowa State, winning ugliest part, winning ugliest part of it. But for, for Texas, I don't see that happening against Oklahoma State. I think they've had this one circled. I think the revenge tour continues. If you remember correctly, there were a lot of cats that weren't on this team last year when they went to play Oklahoma State. And Oklahoma State came to Austin and Texas really had them dead to rights. Let's call it what it was. They were up on them and couldn't finish the deal. I think the killer instinct is there from Texas this year, and I think we see a big game from B. John Robinson. He's the catalyst for that RPO offense. He's been a bell cow for them all season long. You saw 224 yards from TCU last week. I think B. John has at least 100 on the ground this week, and I think Texas makes a statement in Stillwater that it's a new leaf. It is a new leaf being turned over in year two under Steve Sarkeesian. So we have Texas winning this game 34-27 to 27 on the road in a statement game for the Longhorns. Big, big, big implications for the Big 12 title race. Texas just continues to chip away, finding ways to win. If they can steady that culture and continue to progress from where they have week in and week out, they're going to be in Arlington. Also, if you're Texas, you buy yourself more margin for error in future games. Because this is a very, very losable game, like we already talked about, going to Stillwater. I'm excited to see what kind of Texas we get this coming Saturday. Going to be a lot of fun. Let's talk about the Tennessee offense, huh? Let's give them a little bit of one kudos because they're one of the best offenses, if not the best offense in the country. Josh Heupel is a certified wizard. 47 points a game, over 550 yards of total offense a game. Dude just knows what he's doing when he's drawing it up. And I don't want to take anything away from the players because Hennon Hooker should be in New York when it's all said and done. If they went out, I said it yesterday on our program, if they went out, Hennon Hooker will get the Heisman Trophy. I don't think that's a novel concept. So with that being said, why is this working so effectively? They got good players, yes, but from a schematic standpoint, why are they able to be so successful? There's a couple of concepts, I think, that play into this. We're not going to do the whole video breakdown, X's and O's, but there's some very conversational points that I think are worth mentioning. And the first of which is being they run the ball really, really well. Think of what you know about Tennessee when you're watching the highlights or you're thinking back to the game itself. You think air it out, deep shot, big plays. I mean, just ask Jalen Hyatt. Had over 200 yards receiving, had five touchdowns. Like, you think about fireworks. Well, those are only possible 
in Tennessee's world if they're running the ball effectively. And they've done that. 56% of the time, they are running the football. So they're a running team, if you want to put it that way. Averaging around four and a half yards a carry. That's the secret sauce. You got two backs and right and small that are doing a really good job toting the rock and setting the tempo on the ground. So what does that do when you're running the ball effectively? Well, you start to have some panic at different levels of that defense, meaning you got to commit more guys. So a linebacker that would have been in pass coverage, he's now having to play up and try to help stop the run. Maybe a safety. You were worried about him playing pass coverage or trying to defend that deep pass. Well, now guess what? Because they've been chipping off some big gains, got to come up and play run support. So when that happens, there's more green grass, there's more space, there's more money for the taking. And as a result, Tennessee has the most yards per pass in the entire country, 11 yards a pass. Translation, they're explosive in the pass game because of what they do in the run game. It creates more matchups. When that safety rolls down, well, guess what? That puts more pressure on that corner. That corner doesn't do his job. We got six points scored on us. And you saw that happen a lot against Alabama. Just essentially creating less levels of defense. It's a good deal at Tennessee, and they do it really effectively. They also have really wide splits. Now, what is a split? Essentially, where does the wide receiver line up at? And Tennessee likes to put their receivers darn near on the sideline. Like, they're pretty much on the tick mark. You can have a conversation with Josh Heupel if you're that wide receiver at Tennessee because that's how far out you are. So you say, okay, well, that's fine. Uh, that's cool. What, what's, what's the point here? Get to the point. What that does is it causes the defense to cover the entire 53.3 yards of grass in terms of width. So when you have guys spaced out, there's more space to be covered by the defense, which puts what Josh Heupel says, pressure on overhang players. Overhang players is a fancy word for a safety that's rolled down or a linebacker that's rolled down. Basically, they have a run responsibility and a pass responsibility as an overhang player. And if you have a wide receiver spaced all the way out, that makes it really hard because basically what you're doing, you're putting more things on their to-do list that they just can't account for, quite frankly. You have to play pass coverage with 20 yards of space behind you. And oh, by the way, the running back, if you don't you know, fill in run support, he's going to get his five, six yards. Bad way to live. And so when they do that, they just give their receivers more room to work. Going back to matchups, creates matchups, and they hit home runs, and that happens pretty frequently for Tennessee. So those wide splits just give those wide receivers a whole lot of room to work, a whole lot of room for Henry Hooker to throw, and it just gives you a whole lot of room that you can't cover as a defense. You with me? Beautiful. Last thing they do really well, and this is not a novel concept, You've probably heard this talked about a lot if you watch any kind of Tennessee football broadcast, but they go Talladega Knights, Ricky Bobby fast. They're snapping the ball right around 15 seconds, every single 15 seconds. So four plays in a minute. That's really fast. And you understand, okay, great. Well, that probably wears out the defense, right? Because they're running and they're huffing and they're puffing. Yes, very, very true. To the same token, the way the rule book is set up, you're not allowed to sub if you're the defense unless Tennessee subs. So what can happen is Tennessee gets a personnel on the field that they like that you're in defensively. Like say, for example, you got a whole bunch of big guys on the field and you're not you know, equipped to stop the pass. Well, they can just go and go and go and go and you can't sub, you can't get the guys in there unless you call timeout. So in case you want to burn a timeout, you only get three of them a half, you're in trouble. All right, you're in trouble. That's just the way that that thing works. 
very interested to see how they go the rest of the way. Because with how effective they are running the football, the way they attack you formationally, and how quickly they go, it's going to cause problems for you. It is going to cause problems for you as a defense. It just will. And so if they can score at the rate that they score at consistently, Georgia's really good. I don't know that they're going to play a team the rest of the way that can score with them. If they get into a track meet and can run their race, nobody's stopping Tennessee. But those are all the things they do really well. And that's a reason why they have, in my opinion, the most impactful and most effective offense in the entire country. I don't feel sorry for DCs that got to play Tennessee. Just the reality. Yeah, Tennessee's good, y'all. I don't think there's much more to say besides that, but Tennessee's real good, and they got the personnel on top of all that to be even more lethal. Goes without saying. If you're watching right now, subscribe to the channel. We would love to have you a part of this, and you subscribing gives us a better gauge of what kind of content you want to see. All right, so join the party, subscribe, costs you nothing, helps us, helps you. It's a great partnership. All right, roll party. Let's get back to the previews and the predictions. Syracuse, ranked undefeated Syracuse, rather, is going to Death Valley to play the Clemson Tigers. Clemson is favored by 13 and a half. Now, you will hear a lot about this game because everybody and anybody that went to journalism school and is working for ESPN or Fox or whatever big media outlet it is, probably went to Syracuse. That's cool. That's great. We on the show, me and Nick Brake, we didn't go to Syracuse, so we don't really care, but this is a great game. We're going to break it down. Clemson is likely facing their last real hurdle of the ACC slate. And that's not a knock on the ACC. It's not a knock on Clemson. That's just the reality. They're probably going to pass this, be able to, or at least be, in better position to continue to run the table. This is the last ranked team they'll probably see maybe before the ACC title game. And if you watched their game last week against Florida State, you know they didn't really finish that game the, the way they wanted to. They kind of had it won in the third quarter and looked like a little bit. They sort of took their foot off the gas. And Dabo Sweeney this week challenged his entire program. He said, no, 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 no. We got to have a killer instinct. That's cool to beat Florida State. We want to do that. That's great to win a game. It's hard to win a game. He said, I appreciate winning. But to get to where they want to go, if they want to hoist that college football playoff trophy, probably even more so if they want to host that ACC title trophy, they got to have that killer instinct. So there is a challenge out there for the Clemson Tigers. Keep that in mind. For Syracuse, they're 6-0 for the first time since 1987. It's impressive. It's a good time to be in Syracuse, New York. A win for them over Clemson. Think about that, what that would do for that program. Think about just the message that would send to the rest of the country. Whoa, hey, we got to start taking Syracuse seriously over here. we got to start factoring them into maybe the college football playoff conversation. It sounds funny to say it right now, but if we get to next Tuesday and we're talking about Syracuse beating Clemson, well, then this is a whole new conversation, all right? Just something to think about. Also think about where this, excuse me, where this Syracuse program was at the beginning of the year. Dino Babers, for a lot of people, was on that hot seat talk. Is he going to be able to keep his job? Well, let me tell you this. They went from being on the ropes to now being on the top rope and potentially ready to pull off a very, very big upset. So we're going to break this thing down. One of the hinge points for us here is how extra does that Syracuse defense have to be? Because Clemson wants to run the football. They've been pretty effective running the football. And Will Shipley is a workhorse for them. 
averaging right around six yards a carry. Dude is a dog. He is, in a lot of ways, what their offense goes through. Whether he's catching the ball, whether he's running the ball, he's a bell cow for them. They're going to feed him. For Syracuse, are you able to just play him head up in that front seven? Are you able to just say, hey, we're going to play our base defense, we're going to play our trenches versus your trenches, and we feel like we can stop you. If they can stop them, well, that changes the entire complexion of the game. Because that means that Clemson then has to be a little bit more multiple in how they attack. Put more pressure on DJ, who's been pretty solid under pressure, to be fair. But it probably makes the game a little bit more interesting, to say the least, for Syracuse. For Syracuse, if they can't, let's say they have to commit an extra safety. They have to make that box a little bit more loaded. More guys up there trying to stop the run. Well, then that plays perfectly into Clemson's hands. Because then you got Antonio Williams, the freaky fast freshman, running down the sideline, and he's got one-on-one coverage. You don't want him one-on-one. I'm just telling you right now. Also, all the big bodies they got, whether it's Bringenstool, whether it's Ngata, they got dudes, right? You have them one-on-one, you're probably not winning that matchup if you're Syracuse. Just the reality. So stay out of one-on-one coverage by being able to stop the run with your front seven. Now I'll just say this. To my understanding, Clemson likes that matchup. They feel like Syracuse is maybe a little bit undersized in the trenches. They think they can take advantage of that. If Clemson can take advantage of that, they're just going to dictate their tempo, play their game, feed Will Shipley. They can be balanced. They can be in the play-action kind of game. Like Everything opens up if they can run the football. Big hinge point in this one. On the flip side, can Clemson earn some passing downs? And if they can earn some passing downs, well, then it's time to hunt. And Schrader's a good quarterback for Syracuse, but if that front seven is in hunt mode, it's bad news for everybody. So, Sean Tucker, running back for Syracuse, averaging right around five yards a carry. He's very quietly one of the best backs in the country. If he played at a school with a bigger logo, you'd probably know a little bit more about him. He's actually great on Twitter because he tweets out a review of his performance every single game, whether he was pleased, whether he was not pleased. He's a great follow. Check that out. But he needs to be pleased with his performance in this game to give Syracuse a chance. Because if you're living in third and eight, God forbid, third and ten, then you got to deal with Xavier Thomas off the edge. You got to deal with Brian Brzee. You got to deal with Miles Murphy. Like, there is a lot of dudes that are going to play on Sundays in this Clemson front seven, and they are all running at you, and they know it's a passing down. That's a bad deal. It's a very bad deal. Now, you can live in a third and four or in a third and two. Well, guess what? Playbook's open. You can, you can effectively run the ball, or you can do play action. You can keep that defense off balance. And that is the world you want to live in if you're Syracuse. You do not want to have your hands shown to this Syracuse front seven and just pray for guys to get open. That's not going to be a good story for you if you're Dino Babers and company. Not to mention it's in Death Valley. Place will be rocking. I think Dabo Sweeney issued a call to action in very Dabo Sweeney fashion, said, tie your shoes, eat your breakfast bars. Apparently that's the thing they do down there in Clemson, South Carolina. I love it. Can't have that happen for Syracuse. We'll allow the crowd to get even more into it. I don't want to talk this to death. Don't let those Tigers hunt. Run the ball. Be able to run the ball. Good things will happen for you if you're Syracuse. So here's probably what it comes down to for me in this entire game. Clemson is the more talented program. Clemson is, just quite frankly, the more experienced program. They have a more proven coach. They have a better quarterback. Like All the edges favor Clemson. 
if Clemson plays their game, if Clemson plays to their capacity, their caliber, they're going to win this game and they're going to cover the spread. If they don't, if we see what happened with them fourth quarter against Florida State where they're not super efficient on either side of the ball and they're hurting themselves, if they play with their food, they will make this game interesting. And if this game is interesting, the crowd's not in it. And I think it'll be very interesting to see if DJ has a moment where he kind of flashes back to 2021. Now, I will say this. I don't think that happens. I think Dabo Sweeney's call to action this week to his team, to the challenge to his team to say, hey, I don't like how we finished. That's not us. We need better. I think that allows them to avoid this kind of letdown spot. So I think DJ plays a clean game. I think Will Shipley eats consistently. I think they're really internally motivated right now, and I think this thing gets ugly in the Valley. Clemson wins this one, 38-14. to 14. The Tigers roll, and they essentially lock up a spot in the ACC title game. The boys are hungry down there in Clemson, South Carolina. But how about it? Syracuse is ranked. Like, can we not just take a moment and say, I love college football, that Syracuse is undefeated and going to Death Valley, and it's a ranked matchup? That's a beautiful thing. We love this sport for stuff like that. It's going to be a beautiful, beautiful atmosphere. From one Death Valley to another, Ole Miss is going to go play LSU. Now, Ole Miss is a top 10 ranked program. LSU's favorite in this game. LSU, in my opinion, made a statement to the rest of the country last week beating Florida. At Florida, no less. They went to the swamp and got a dub. And they did a lot of things that, honestly, a lot of us thought they couldn't do. Scored 45 points offensively, and they started fast. I mean, that was the thing we had been begging for from this program for a long time. They scored in their first six possessions. They didn't punt till the fourth quarter. You heard me right. They didn't punt till late in this game. That's something we've been asking for from LSU for a long time. With a makeshift offensive line, Jaden Daniels, his receiving core, the run game, and Josh Williams, it looked like it was clicking. Now, this is a dangerous time for everybody else in that conference for LSU to sort of be getting it. Looking for in this game, is that who LSU is, or is that just a one-game scenario where you got some good matchups, it was your night? More on that in a second. For Ole Miss, they're a quality top 10 team. They're undefeated. Everything they want is in front of them. Don't look now, but they're leading the SEC West. They're undefeated. Got a date with Bama in the future, but everything they want is in front of them. If you're Ole Miss, do you flinch? So we're going to find out. Going to Death Valley, you find out real, real quick. Going back to what I was saying a second ago, especially for the LSU offense. Like, is this who you are? Are you a team that's going to be consistently efficient now and it just took that game to kind of get the wheel spinning and it's going to snowball now? Or is that, like I said, a one-game scenario where you play well, a couple things break your way, you at your Wheaties, whatever it is. Is that a fluke or is that your identity? Because if it's who they are, then they're going to be able to, at the very least, be equipped in a shootout with Ole Miss because Ole Miss is going to score 38 per the stats. I mean, they're scoring 38 a game. Now, do they score 38 in this game? I don't know. But if they did, you like your chances a lot better if you're LSU. What I'm trying to say here is they can go toe-to-toe, excuse me, they can go toe-to-toe regardless of the way this gameplay unfolds, if this is the kind of offense that LSU really has. Now, if they can't, you got to lean on that defense. And that defense is really good. I know they had 35 hung on them last week, but that defense is really good. 
But at the same time, 35 points is not a small feat for an offense in Florida that was inconsistent at times. Do you really want to ask them to try and stop an Ole Miss program that's scoring 38 a game? I don't think so. I don't think that's the world you really want to live in, especially with how they struggled last week. Something to watch for, because I was really impressed by Jaden Daniels and Kayshawn Butte. Been waiting for them to get it going. They got it going. Is that who they are, or is that just a fluke? The other thing I'm looking at, the other hinge point for us in this game, who gets their way? It sounds funny to say, but, but who gets their way, especially in the trenches? Ole Miss runs the ball just about as much as anybody in the country. Number five in terms of percentage they run the football. It's them and the academies, if we want to be real about it. 65% of the time, they are running the ball, and they do it really well. 277 yards a game on the ground. They're going to run the football. That's their attitude. That's their identity. That's their mentality. LSU, on the other hand, is pretty solid against the run. Not going to say they're all world light in the world on fire, but they're only allowing 135, and they got a lot of dudes in that front seven, especially B.J. Ojolari, that are going to play at the next level very, very soon. So, which one of those gets their way? Is Ole Miss able to run the football and dictate their tempo? If they do, the question goes back to LSU's offense. You got to match scores. If, if Ole Miss gets ahead, I know they like to go a little bit quicker than the average bear, but if they get ahead and they're running the football at the rate they want to, they can afford to just kind of take their time and, and really put the game at whatever kind of pace they want. Something to keep an eye on. Now, if they can't, the pressure goes to Jackson Dart, and that's where I really want to settle in here. Jackson Dart has a lot of ability. We haven't seen it from him just yet, but he's got a lot of ability. My concern is I don't think he looks extremely comfortable just yet in this offense. It's a new system to him, and it's a system that he's not familiar with at any level. Not at USC, not in high school. The RPO game is something that's completely new to him. It's like a whole new pair of shoes he's still breaking in. And if history is our teacher here, if he has to be a guy that throws the ball— the games where they have asked a higher volume from him in attempts has led to a little bit of a spotty record against Vanderbilt. 32 attempts, two interceptions. Now, he had three touchdowns to go with it, but two interceptions. If you're spotting two interceptions to this LSU defense, I don't know that you have the three touchdowns to go with it. All right? That's what I'm saying. The margin for error becomes a little bit smaller. 29 attempts against Kentucky. Zero touchdowns, one interception. Like, you see what I'm asking here? You ask more of Jackson Dart, he's going to deliver as best he can, but there's going to be some ugliness baked in there. And for Ole Miss and, and, and Lane Kiffin, that's not how they want to live. That's not the kind of game plan they want to have. And if that is the game plan that happens, I think it favors LSU. Just fact of the matter. Switching gears to the other quarterback, and Jaden Daniels, he's had musical chairs on the offensive line. We've said it, like six different units. Every single week, it's like you decide where you want to start this week and we'll go out there and that's going to be the way that we play offensive line. Draw a name out of the hat. Guess what? You're at left guard this week. You're at right tackle. On top of that, two true freshmen on the offensive line. In the SEC, it's a risky way to live. But credit LSU, they've done it. They did it well last week, ran for over 100 yards. They were impactful. They were effective. Ole Miss is pretty good rushing the passer. Top 20 in terms of their sack rate. Right around 8% of the time, they're sacking the quarterback. Now, Jaden Daniels, what you know about him, a lot of the reason probably why he won the job is what he can do from a mobility standpoint. He's pretty good when the play breaks down. What we saw last week, though, was the extra mile that he went. 
We saw when the play broke down, it wasn't just get out and run the football. Now, he did that effectively. Don't get it twisted. But when he got out, when he's flushed out of the pocket, kept his eyes downfield. And we saw Kayshawn Butte eat, like we had waited for for a while. We saw a number of these receivers get busy. It wasn't just dumping off to the tight end, dumping off to the running back. It was, I'm going to roll out, and that's when the big play can happen. So which of those do we see? Do we see eyes downfield, Jaden Daniels, or do we see, hey, I'm going to get out, tuck it and run, and try and just pick up a few yards? If we see the latter, I promise you the Ole Miss front seven is going to get to him. Maybe it works a couple times in the first quarter. Maybe it works a little bit in the first half. By the third and fourth quarter, Ole Miss will make you pay for that. It's not a sustainable kind of way to live offensively. And LSU knows that. They tried to do that a lot in the early going. That was what we saw from Jaden Daniels the first few games. Offense sputtered. You can keep his eyes downfield and feed these horses they have on the outside. Good things are going to happen, just like we saw last week. So our prediction for this game. This line feels a lot like somebody knew something. It just does. I mean, one and a half points against a top 10 team. And LSU is a program that we have honestly seen be very inconsistent all year long. Somebody knows something. So we're not going to be a sucker to that. Also, just quite frankly, I don't trust Ole Miss's resume. I'm looking down their list of, excuse me, their list of wins and Kentucky's impressive. Those of you that watched that game when Kentucky went to Ole Miss, they should, have, they should have lost that game, right? I mean, there were multiple times where Kentucky just gifted them the game, whether it was turnovers in the red zone, whatever it was. There were many opportunities for Ole Miss to lose that game. Now, a win's a win, but I think their luck runs out when they go to Death Valley. Brian Kelly's got this program playing with a lot of grit, a lot of intensity, and they're starting to channel all that talent in the right direction at LSU. So I think it's close. I think it's exciting. I think that line is just about right. We have LSU winning the game 31-28 to 28 at home. Something's cooking in Baton Rouge. The Tigers get a top 10 win against Lane Kiffin and company. Just think about the storylines around that, right? I mean, Ole Miss in control of the SEC West. They're just sort of marching down their schedule, and they've been really effective offensively. Transfer quarterback, Lane Kiffin's still holding this thing together. And then LSU inconsistent, a lot of question marks, LSU gets it done at home. Love the sport. So we got the Tigers in that one. We'll finish this thing off talking about UCLA going to Eugene, Oregon. Before we do that, though, do me a favor, subscribe to the channel. If nothing else, do it as a favor to myself and Nick Brake. We appreciate you in advance. So thank you for that. Back to what we were saying before that, though. UCLA going to Eugene, Oregon. The Ducks are favored by six points. It's a 3.30 Eastern game. College game day is going to be on location. And I want to stress how impressive that is because college game day happens at 9 a.m. Eastern. And there's a lot of prep, I'm sure, that goes in before that. Guys are probably getting makeup and getting hours of preparation before that actually goes live. So the time change, it goes live at 6 a.m., on the West Coast. So you got people probably getting up at 2, 3 o'clock to make this pregame show happen. They wouldn't do that if this wasn't a big game. And we're going to preview it. Oregon has been a different team since the Georgia game. Because that's probably the snapshot you have in your mind if you are a casual college football fan. Oregon goes to Atlanta in a neutral site, right? I mean, it was just basically a home game for Georgia with some air conditioning. And they got just drugged. Since then... They've been really good. They've been really, really effective. And Bo Nix 
has been, I don't want to say a comeback story, but he's been a great story with how effective he's played. Reunited with Kenny Dillingham, this offense is humming. If you were to look at all the stars on this Oregon roster in terms of like what they were recruiting wise coming out of high school. A lot of those four-star guys are on the defensive side, but the offense is driving this program. Like I mentioned, scoring 42 a game, Bo Nix playing effective, playing efficient. And this is going to be a great chance for them to make a statement to the rest of the country, because how rare is it for the PAC 12 to have a national kind of stage like this? was talking to Justin Hopkins, who does a phenomenal job for us over on our Oregon on three site. He's covered the ducks for 15 years. He said, I have never seen a home game with this much excitement, this much buzz, this much hype around it. It's going to be an electric atmosphere in Autzen. So that's Oregon. For UCLA, it's a familiar face. Chip Kelly coached Oregon for a really long time. He's going back to Autzen. He's been back to Autzen before, but I don't think the lights have ever been this bright. And he's got UCLA playing some really good football. Last time we checked in on them, they were just taking Utah to the woodshed, scoring pretty much at will. Dorian Thompson-Robinson has paid his dues in full and is now starting to see some benefits from that. This offense really complements him. They're scoring at 40 points a game. I mean, they may be the Pac-12's best chance at the college football playoff. That's just the fact of the matter. They really, they, they might be. USC lost. Utah's got a couple losses. I don't know if a one-loss champ in Oregon gets in. UCLA may be their best chance right now. So where, where are the hinges in this game, right? What are the things to watch? I think, quite frankly, where is this game being played is one of my biggest hinges. And, of course, we know it's in Eugene. Like, we know it's in Autzen. Let me rephrase that. Where is this game being played in terms of the style of play? Is it being played in a phone booth? Or is it being played on a freeway? Allow me to elaborate. Oregon would like to play this game in a phone booth. Their strength lies in the middle. They want to go north and south on offense with their run game. They want to play in the trenches defensively. They want to try and keep you as tucked in tight as possible. And if they can secure those edges and make you play within the tackles, it's going to be a long day because they are a blue-collar operation. Dan Lanning, a defensive guy, he is going to take it to you. And that's going to translate to bad things for UCLA. So keep an eye on that, especially the linebackers, the defensive ends. Watch how they play that zone read game from UCLA. For UCLA, like we mentioned, they want to play on the freeway. They want to get you out in space. They want to create one-on-one matchups because they feel like those Oregon linebackers, really talented in run support, really talented in general, like we said, high star kind of guys. But when you get them in space, they think that favors their athletes. And it's hard to blame them compared to what we saw in that Utah game. UCLA just put on a clinic, juice box and T-shirt kind of operation, what we like to say around here. Put on a clinic. And Chip Kelly is one of the best play callers in the country. He's just a wizard when it comes to what he does with the playbook. He's going to attack those edges. So that's going to be a hinge point. Can they play in the freeway, play in space, play fast like they want to? Or is it a thing where, hey, we're not letting you get outside. If you want to beat us, you got to go through us just the way that we're going to play this game. Phone booth favors Oregon. Freeway favors UCLA. Other thing I'm watching in this game, which quarterback blinks? Another way to say that is, which quarterback ad-libs more safely? Because Dorian Thompson-Robinson, DTR, determine the relationship, as some people like to call him, and Bo Nix are both really good at extending plays with their legs and creating 
scramble drill kind of situations for their receivers to get open, which is great. But anytime you ad lib, there's more margin for things to go wrong. There's more possibility that, hey, when you put the ball in the air, chaos can favor you, but it could also favor the defense. So who's going to ad lib more safely? To this point in the year, they've both been really effective, both over 70% completion percentage, both relatively low interception numbers, and they're both moving the offense at a really effective rate. I truly believe whoever wins this game will get a quarterback that has a cleaner stat sheet. Both can hurt you with their legs, but I think ultimately it's going to be a matter of who's able to just take better care of the football, which is just one of the many rules of the game, really. I mean, just that's one of the, the coaching points. Every single Sunday morning you come in as a college football player, your coach is telling you who won the turnover battle. And I promise you, every Thursday or Friday night before the game, they are talking to you saying, if we want to win tomorrow, we got to win the turnover battle. And I think that's something that is emphasized and probably more visible when it comes to this quarterback duel. So here's how we see this thing breaking down. Already talked about it. Chip Kelly, even when you think you have him down, he's a step ahead of you. Chip Kelly is taking this game, whether he says it publicly or not, I think this is personal to him. I think he's relishing this kind of spotlight and opportunity for his program. And UCLA, it just feels like they've worked towards a year like this since he's got there. Like it's finally all starting to mesh together. DTR is playing some of the best football of his entire career. Came back for a reason. I think he's poised for a big day. I think Chip Kelly calls a phenomenal game. And I think just further along is UCLA than this Oregon product with their first year under Dan Lanning. I think the moment is UCLA's, and I think not only do they cover that six points, I think they win the game outright, stunning the folks in Eugene. So we think UCLA wins this game in shootout kind of fashion, 41-38. to 38. Chip Kelly and company get a huge win for their program on the road in front of the entire country. Think about what that would mean for the Pac-12. The college football playoff conversation starts to shift more and more towards the other team in L.A., a lot of it was about USC and Caleb Williams, Lincoln Riley. They still may have a chance at it. There's some chaos probably has to happen. And undefeated Pac-12 champs getting in. I don't care who you are, what you say. If UCLA wins out and they beat a Utah team twice or a USC team twice, they're going to be in the dance. But got to do it this Saturday against the Ducks. All right. Now it's time for the best part of the entire show. You join the party. We're kicking open the door. Also, the door was already open to begin with. Like, come on in, stay a while. Cutting all the red tape. Red tape was cut to begin with. We're just kind of saying things right now. Come get in here. We're going to get to your questions right now. But bringing on the keeper of the queue, the best-looking man on the hard count, Nick Heavy Lifter Break. What we got in the queue today, my man? How we doing? What's up, man? Doing good. Uh, first question we've got coming from Sacred Gaming. He wants to know, and I like this question, who's the best running back right now in the country? Wow, best running back right now in the country. You know, a lot of people would probably tell you B. John Robinson. I don't think they're wrong. For how special Jameer Gibbs is and what he means to that team, I mean, I saw him do a lot of things against Tennessee this past Saturday where I was just like, it just looks so effortless for him. So I think Jameer Gibbs is my vote, but there's a lot of guys that would get consideration as well. So I go Jameer Gibbs one. We'll put B. John Robinson at 1B. That's a good question, though. Nick, you look good, man. You get a haircut? You know I did, and you know I don't feel too good about it. I think uh, you look good. That wasn't that wasn't the setup. I'm being genuine. I think you look good. Well, and thank I, you, man. I'm sure I appreciate people would, it. You, would echo that you, yeah. in the live chat. Yeah. I'm glad you do. Um, 
That makes one of us. Uh, so we got another question, and uh, as you'd expect, we've got a lot of Tennessee questions here in the chat. Uh, keep them coming. Keep asking questions. It doesn't have to be about Tennessee. Love it. Um, this one is from Kay. Is Hendon Hooker Heisman hype real, or does C.J. Stroud have it in the bag? I know we talked about this yesterday. There's a video on our YouTube about, about it, but, J.D., uh, you want to restate your thoughts? Absolutely. No, so to answer your question – just as straightforward as possible, the Hendon Hooker Heisman hype is 1 million percent real. Right now, he is the second odds-on favorite to win the Heisman behind C.J. Stroud. And the way that we feel about it here is if they both just play good football down the stretch, let's say Ohio State wins out, let's say Tennessee wins out, I think Hendon Hooker has more stages available to him to make a statement to the rest of the country. I mean, think about it. If Tennessee wins out, think about what that would mean. That means they beat Georgia at Georgia, which would send a message to the entire country. If Knoxville was on fire last Saturday, I don't know what would happen to Knoxville if they beat Georgia. And the game's not even in Neyland Stadium. And that would also mean that they beat an Alabama team likely, assuming that things go the way they go. Alabama wins the SEC West. That would mean they beat them a second time. It is so difficult to beat Alabama once, to beat them twice in the same season is borderline impossible. So if he does that and plays well and this offense continues to play at the caliber they have played out, scoring right around 45, 47 a game, you can hand him the Heisman because those would be some moments that are just about impossible to wipe from any voter's mind. C.J. Stroud, still some good stages, but they just kind of lack that shine, in my opinion. The Penn State game will be a fun one. It should be a good chance for him to make a statement. I think the game against Michigan will be huge, obviously, as it always is every year. But then you get to the Big Ten title game, and no knock on him or the Big Ten, but the Big Ten West just isn't really holding up their end of the bargain in terms of making that a, a huge heavyweight bout. So if all things go the same for both players and both programs win out, as long as Tennessee keeps winning, Hendon Hooker will be the Heisman Trophy winner. It's a great question, though. Absolutely love it. Yeah, and J.D., a quick programming note. Uh, Chris Pugh asked, hey, what happened to the recap show? Uh, guessing he means the Sunday show. Hey, uh, Chris, we are now going to be live Tuesday, Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central. And if you're watching us, if you're a uh, Pac-12 fan, it'll be on at uh, 1 o'clock. So we don't have a Sunday show anymore, but we are having a plethora of content coming out on Sundays. So check the feed on YouTube for that. Another question from Kay. Uh, this is a good one. Uh, what transfer is balling out so far this year for you, J.D.? Hmm. So, Hendon Hooker is just kind of a cop-out answer. He actually was a transfer from Virginia Tech. Outside of that, there's some guys that we've talked about on this program a few times, but Jameer Gibbs could not be more of a home run for Nick Saban and company. Like, there's sometimes guys that transfer in, and it's not a fit, or it takes a while for them to get up to speed. Jameer Gibbs has been all they hoped for, and then some, in Tuscaloosa. On top of that, Quinn Ewers, it's funny to say he's a transfer because he didn't really play at all at Ohio State, but what he's done coming in, winning that job, and just really revamping the entire look of that offense, I think makes a world of difference for Texas. So those two guys, Ewers, Gibbs, I mean, you could not be happier uh, if you got one of those guys in the transfer portal. And then, I mean, you looked at the West Coast, and it kind of feels like a cop-out answer in itself too, but Caleb Williams and Jordan Addison have been – I mean, extremely quick and how effective they've been offensively. So those are some transfers that I think are guys we knew would work at some point, but the fact they've worked so early in the season, 
I think says something, and I think it just continues to amplify expectations for coaches with being able to work the transfer portal. So those are my guys, though, but we, we could probably do a whole segment on that, Nick, to be honest with you. Awesome, J.D. Um, Danny Pritchard. What did you know? Another Tennessee question. Hey, keep them coming. Tennessee Vols showing out on, on our page. Uh, I think this is an easy answer. Uh, you may say different. Who's going to be the quarterback uh, for Tennessee next year? Ooh, okay. I like where this is headed. So we'll set the table a little bit here. Tennessee has got Joe Milton as their number two quarterback right now. You probably last saw him throwing a Hail Mary to end the first half for Tennessee, and he just launched it 60 yards effortless, flick of the wrist. They also have a five-star quarterback in Nico Iamaliava committed. That was a huge get for them. I mean, he is a dude and then some. There was a lot of big-time programs after him. And Nico jumped on board before Tennessee was cool, if that makes sense. Like, they were doing well on the recruiting trail, but this was pre-2022, after they had had the 7-5 and five season. Like, he was on board then. And so the question is, is it going to be Nico or is it going to be Joe, is, is essentially what I'm reading between the lines here to understand. Nico Imaliava is the future at Tennessee. With that being said... I would be hard-pressed to play him as a true freshman. So much pressure. I think there's a chance for him to develop more physically. I'm not a recruiting scouting guy. We have great guys at on three that do that, and Charles Power, director of scouting, and Chad Simmons, director of recruiting. So they have great write-ups on Nico. I think Joe Milton has waited his turn. He's played the college football. I mean, he's played at the college football level for a while now. So I think the higher floor option is Joe Milton, but – you know, we'll see. We're going to get a chance to see Nico here very, very soon. And I know Vol fans are fired up about it. So maybe that's not the popular answer right now. But if I had to pick today, game one, I think Joe Milton gets the start, Nick. I like that a lot. I like J that a lot. What do you think? We got room for two more? I think so. But, Let's J.D., look, you're the brains here in terms of college football. But I'm hearing from Charles in our office upstairs saying that Nico is, is the guy. Okay. He's saying he is outstanding. Watched him a number of times. Uh, start your true freshman. Grow your franchise. You like that? Franchise. Are, you, are you a guy who, who starts the rookies, oh, yeah. Nick? Or like, I actually want to hear. I want to hear your opinion on this. You want so? Am I hearing that you would start Nico? Absolutely. Day one? Oh yeah. Look, this ten, the Tennessee fans are ready for him too. This is your guy for for at least three years. Don't waste one of them. Yeah, that's true. My concern would be that you let him play, and there is I think there is such a thing as playing too early. Yeah. Like, let's say that he plays and doesn't have the success that the fan base expects from him. Does his confidence waver? I don't know. We're speculating, but, yeah. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about that in spades, Nick. But I, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear that's where you stand. I like yeah. it. Play well, the rookie. Hey. And you're, you're right. You're right, because in, a, in the NFL, if you start your rookie then bench him for your other guy, it's a lot worse than doing the other way around. Uh, so... You're picking probably the safer option. I think you should be the coach here, not me. <laughs> um, got a couple more questions, like I said. Um, not named Kansas. This is from Kay again. Who is the surprise team so far into the season? Not named Kansas. You know, I think we're going to go the other direction with this. Michigan State has been just nowhere to be found. I mean, they paid Mel Tucker a boatload and a half, and they have just been abysmal. And a lot of that, I think stems from not having Kenneth Walker anymore. And so I was just surprised to see not even Michigan take, excuse me, Michigan State take a step back, but to see them play as poorly as they have to this point in the year, I think you got to be a little bit concerned if you're a Michigan State fan. So 
They're going to have a chance to play Michigan after this week, and you know we'll see kind of where they stack up. If maybe that rivalry game shows some things that we haven't seen from them, maybe they kind of emptied the clip and, and play their best football against them. But I, I'm very disappointed in what we've seen from Michigan State to this point in the year. I think you could also flip that and say Texas A&M has been a team that a lot of people were handing the preseason national championship trophy too in terms of all the talk in the offseason and they haven't been what we I don't want to say expected because we thought they'd be right around eight wins but nationally there's been some surprise about those programs uh let's put a positive spin on it how about Texas Texas has been I think what a lot of people had hoped they would be in previous years you got a solid quarterback you're starting to see some proof of concept from Steve Sarkeesian so I think all that Texas is doing is surprising in a pleasant sense for the folks down in Austin. And then, I mean, we could throw this in there, but obviously Tennessee doing what Tennessee's done. I mean, they're absolutely the surprise team of the entire season so far. Yeah, feels like a, a pretty pretty easy answer there. I like it. The Hilltoppers, um, though, too. Hilltoppers are playing some good ball, Nick. I think what it's surprising think? a bad way for me, man. Okay. Like a lot of hype on this team. Should have beaten Indiana. Then uh, you lose a couple of bad games. You lose to Troy against Jarrett Diggy, the guy they bench. Uh, yeah, that was a rough one. Uh, but I don't think anyone here in this chat really cares about the uh, Hilltoppers <laughs> in Conference USA. Let's do it. One more question. Let's do it, brother. Let's We've got a couple of people. Uh, David Collins wanted to know the chances between the Vols and Georgia. We're going to get to that kind of with this question because I, I love this question. Because Tiger Sam 13 kind of seems worried as a, maybe a Georgia fan. I don't know by the Tiger's name. I don't think he is a Georgia fan. But he says if hypothetically Georgia's 11-1, and they don't have the SEC title game to go to. They're not going there. Uh, are they going to make the college football playoff? So if Georgia, essentially, if I'm, if I'm hearing this correctly, Georgia takes a loss to Tennessee, and Tennessee and Alabama, you know, meet in the SEC title game, yeah, that would be, that'd be interesting. Um, gosh, I think some of that depends on what happens in the title game, to be honest with yeah. you, because if Tennessee beats Alabama a second time, which would be huge, they would have two losses, if you're Georgia, you're a one-loss SEC team in third place, I suppose, from the standings perspective. So you feel a little bit better about that. Now, if Alabama gets revenge, Alabama does, beats Tennessee, you got Tennessee with one loss, you have, in theory, Alabama with one loss, and you have Georgia with one loss. A third-place SEC team with one loss, I have a hard time believing they would get in. I think there's probably some other things that would have to happen for that to be a reality. But three SEC teams in the top four, I mean, folks, people already feel some type of way about the SEC. I think you know that. There would be riots if there is a Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, and then whatever other team, is that's your college football playoff. There would be a whole lot of unhappy campers. But anything's possible. It's yep. college football. But that's how I would see that shaking out, Nick. Okay. Well, dude, I know I said one more, but we got it. a question that wasn't Tennessee-related, wasn't SEC-related, so I want to show that some love. Uh, this question is from – well, excuse me, man. I had it ready. Uh, You're good, brother. Okay, so the question is regarding NC State. Uh, they want to know, are they ever going to be able to make that title game in Charlotte? Obviously, this year, not going to happen, but mm -hmm. is that ever a thing in the, in the, in the future? Never say never, right? Never say never. My concern is with the way the ACC is flipping to divisions essentially don't matter anymore, right? Like that's going to be the new thing in the ACC very, very soon. I worry about the way that other programs are trending. You're seeing Wake Forest continue to be a relevant program every year in that conference. 
Clemson's being Clemson. They got Cade Klubnik in the wings. Dabo's going to be there until something crazy happens. Like, they're going to continue to trend upwards. Miami, I know it's a down year this year. I just have faith in Mario Cristobal as a program builder. So what I'm saying is the ACC is not getting any easier to win. And with the switch up in the format of making that title game, I don't think that favors NC State. This was kind of an important year for them in the, in the sense that, hey, Devin Leary's here and you got the quarterback. Like having the quarterback is more than half the battle. So you have a huge spot to fill in who's going to be that quarterback to get us to the AC title game. Um, so never say never. I don't see it happening anytime soon, to be 100% honest with you. I think this was kind of the year where you had to strike while the iron was hot and not doing it gives me a little bit of cause for concern. So that's how I see that shaking out. Just the way the ACC is is getting more and more competitive, in, in theory at least, I think it's going to be hard to do. But we'll see. It's a beautiful sport of college football. Hey, before you wrap this up, Colin Gorham, who uh, who asked the question, uh, said said you had him crying after you answered that one. Dang, so man. JD got me crying. <laughs> Dang. I'm sorry, Colin. I'm sorry. Man, it's not personal, Colin. <laughs> it's not personal. Also, if it makes you feel better, Tennessee had a seven-and-a-half game win total before the year started, and we're having a conversation for a lot of this show about what are their chances of making the college football playoff. So people are wrong all the time. College football is a beautiful sport. Don't cry. A lot of games to be played in the future. Folks, that just about does it for us here. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is an absolute blast. This is a privilege. This is a dream job in every sense of the word, and y'all making it a reality. I, I just can't say thank you enough. So what we do here is very much predicated on what you want to see. We are building a community. It's only been a few short months, and those of you that have been on from the jump, thank you. Those of you that have just now found us, come on board. This is the People's College Football Show. So meaning, yes, you know, we, we do content that we script out here, but all these notes that we're taking, everything we're scripting out, it's because you want to see it. It's because of things that we're taking from the data and saying, okay, this is what our audience wants to see. Let's give it to them. All right, so this is your show, For the People, By the People, on a daily basis. Nick Brake, of course, does the heavy lifting. I get to sit behind the mic, but y'all drive the show. One more thing I'll mention, follow me on the social channels, at Judy Piquel on Twitter, at Judy Piquel on Instagram, another way that we can involve you in the show. The stories on Instagram especially are pretty interactive. We do a Q&A on Friday, kind of a state of the union, but that's a lot of fun. We run it up there. We want you a part of it for that as well. So... We'll be live again on Thursday, the same time, 3 Central, 4 Eastern. Whole lot of fun. Come back. We'll have the live chat cooking, and we'll keep this thing going. So until then, we're going to keep the party rolling, and we will see y'all next time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.